3: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me here. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. So thankful, so relieved to be in the studio, but not just any like studio out there, a working studio. I've been in the studio all weekend long due to technical crashes. Um, that's been going on for like a couple weeks now. And uh, man, Mercury is in serious retrograde or something but some computers aren't talking to each other, blah, 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 blah. And uh, the only thing that does work for now (laughs) would be at least the audio portion of our studio. As you know, I also do the television show. And so I like to shoot up here and I do a bunch of also, you know, short form multimedia type stuff. And all of that has crashed except for the audio portion. So I guess I love you, Progressive Voices listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. My young nephew, Kenny, is behind the board. Thank goodness you haven't ditched me yet. Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. So, um, you know, what's hot topic right now, I'm sure all your friends are talking about it at the bars and the nightclubs, would be the presidential election. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Huge topic. Well, you know, um, I'm happy to know that you have registered to vote for the very first time in your young life, mm-hmm. and uh, you're going to make an informed decision come November, right? Correct. And and what is that informed decision? Sorry, I, I don't mean to pry, but I got to make sure you're making the right decision.
4: Definitely not Trump.
3: Uh, oh, oh, so you do know a little bit about, you know, each side, at yeah. least. You're paying attention.
4: A l- yeah, a little. I try.
3: Okay, so why not vote for trump? i you know not not just because you know that I'm not voting for Trump, but
4: well, um, I feel like he has no type of experience to like run for a presidential spot it it he just he's more of a powerful
3: type of guy. He has all that money powerful, I would say corrupt oh exactly that too but it's just, <laughs> he thinks money
4: rules. Though you know the world, he could, he has all the power to do whatever.
3: And not he can. even, not even his money. I, I, you know, it's like other people's money. Yeah, but anyway, I'm, I'm happy that you are at least going to vote for the very first time. That is super important that you do. So congratulations. Thank you. Let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. dot com. So we've been celebrating bi-week since September 19th. It's been going on from September 19th through the 26th. Uh, Many organizations out there have been celebrating hashtag bi-week 2016 by posting pictures and or videos or sharing stories from the bi-community, and it's all uh, for recognizing the bisexual community. And I believe actual Bisexuality Day is on September 23rd. Well, it's the 26th. And so I'm very happy that our next guest is actually an incredible voice for the bisexual community. She's been an activist since coming out in the early 80s and has founded a few organizations devoted to bisexual awareness. Let's start. Uh, with BIPOL, the first feminist bisexual political action group, and also was instrumental in organizing BINET USA, which was the first national bisexual rights organization, as well as San Francisco Bay Area Bisexual Network. I should also note that she fought extremely hard and was successful for including the bisexual community uh, during the 1993 uh, march uh, in Washington for gay lesbian liberation and was one of the only bisexual voices to be included in the speeches during that march. So let's welcome Lani Kaomanu. Lonnie, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. I could go
3: on and on and on and on about all the work that you have done leading up to 2016. So I feel very honored to have you on the show during Bisexual Awareness Week.
2: Thank you. I know I came out in 1980. And out of the, I was a lesbian from 1976 to 1980. So I've <clears throat> I've seen quite the uh, arc
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. right.
2: of, uh, of bisexual awareness. And so it's thrilling these days to see how many people are coming out or have come out and how much action there is and recognition mm-hmm.
3: is important. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, that was one of my questions, you know, and kind of like you know, today, or I should say in 2016 at least, I mean, the White House, had a formal reception at least in sharing by uh by stories during bisexual awareness week um lots of the major publications have have also participated, but also lots of l g b t organizations I know for an activist like you, you're fighting for the bisexual community within our own community in which um you know for for a lot of people it was somewhat invisible and or silenced
2: uh yes. <laughs> I was the actually I was I served on the what was the National Gay Lesbian Task Force as the first out bisexual and I like to say out because um, when I came out in 1980 and all through and it still happens once in a while is that uh, lesbian and gay people had a lot of fear coming out as bisexual so they would come and just talk to me because they had nowhere else to go which was really sad. But and I understood. Oh, I'll lose my job. I'll lose my community. And um, that is that is shifted somewhat. And um, the visibility is really really important because uh, there's a health crisis with bisexual people. And uh, some of it's the stigma, and some of it is because we're still invisible. Mm-hmm. And I face that in the elder community, the LGBT elder community. Uh, bisexual is still a really invisible population, and I think part of it's just because a lot of the elders are still in the 70s and 80s and are not part of this, don't have a lot of young people in their lives um, where bisexuality is very common. And so I find myself, again, uh, when I go speak to the elder groups and I'm talking to Uh, lesbian separatists or people that have like so much misinformation. I'm thinking, wow, things really haven't changed in in many ways, Mm -hmm. which can be disheartening in some ways. And then something beautiful happens like the White House and uh, national organizations stepping up. All of them have stepped up. It's uh, fantastic. Right, right. does my heart good? <laughs>
3: Let's go back to the early 80s. You know, um, the gay lesbian liberation movement uh, has already started uh, in terms of, you know, Stonewall had had uh, we experienced Stonewall um, during that time. If you wouldn't mind taking us back there and kind of either reminding those who had lived during that time and or, you know, grew, uh, grew up and remembered what it was like in that environment. But for a lot of us also who are tuning in may not know, you know, how, Mm -hmm. um, how much the bisexual community was impacted by even, uh, our, I guess I should say our own community, the LG, um, community in, in that they also, I would say made a contribution to, I guess, keep the bisexual community silence or invisible.
2: um, yeah. There well, when we say lesbian and gay lesbian and gay, what's um important is to turn around and look at our LGBT history and just two things right off the top of my head. The very first gay student group, it was called a student homophile league at Columbia University, was founded by an out bisexual Stephen Donaldson. And um that's in history, but people don't hear our bisexual history that's woven into, you know, it's gay, lesbian, gay, lesbian. And in fact, uh, another is Brenda Howard was at Stonewall and she was the one that organized a month later at Stonewall a uh, gathering to celebrate, to commemorate that. And then a year later, she was key in organizing the, the year anniversary, which then went on to you know, birth basically the whole, uh, pride events that we have every single year. So bisexuals have been here all along Mm -hmm. and we're invisible because, uh, as soon as a bisexual person partners, uh, there's an automatic, oh, if you're with a man, people think you're, you know, if you're a man and you're with a man, they think you're gay. If you're with a woman, oh, you're automatically a lesbian. So, um, there's that really either or thing that is so so fundamental in our how we recognize people and bisexuals uh, remain invisible because of that even even today but back in the 80s um the women's com- the lesbian community was very separate from the gay community mm-hmm. and um it wasn't until the 80s and AIDS where the commun- the lesbian and gay community came together more but um, bisexuals were very visible. Actually, in from 1976 to 1984, there was an actual bisexual center in San Francisco. A building that you went to was uh, the Bottom Flat, and it had an international newsletter and parenting support groups and coming out groups and social things. And they marched in the party, uh, the Pride Parade every year, and um, politically aligned with. Uh, lesbian and gay community, like with the Briggs Initiative and No On Six um, issues. So all along, bisexuals have been present but invisible, not taken seriously because we really didn't exist. When AIDS hit, that was really devastating also for bisexual men. It was gay and bisexual men dying, and it took two years of Dr. David Laurier Struggling with the San Francisco Department of Health to include bisexual men in the statistics, because how do you educate a population if they're not present in the statistics? And you know, the what's been talked about or being talked about as little as it was in the um, in the press. So, I think how we look at history is really important. And actually, I'm writing my activist memoir and hopefully I'm going to fill in a lot of that history because even when I read brilliant people like Lillian Faderman's latest mm. book or Bronsky's book or you know, all these historians, D'Amelio, et cetera, they don't get the bisexual piece. And so it's erased. race. So in wow. lesbian history, even though I've talked to these people and I go, you know, you're right. And it's like, really? <laughs> I, I, I'm reading your book, honey. And <clears throat> there's like, Vice Binet is mentioned once in one of their books. Once and that's it. That's our history. It's called LGBT history or queer history. There's an exclusion that happens and it's just so embedded that um I'm excited by everything that's going on in a national and international level too. And we still have a lot of work to do. Sure. What's yeah. passed down?
1: Right. So I'm
2: hoping I, my memoir will help fill in and then there really will be no excuse. But, you know, the bisexual history timeline is up on the web. All you have to do is, you know, mm-hmm. bisexual history. And I don't understand why the researchers are not even just doing that little bit.
3: I, I mean, I, I I also read Lillian Faderman's book in which um, the New York Times and, you know, major media outlets had dubbed it you know one of the most comprehensive lgbt history books um to date and yeah. and for someone you know who might be a little younger if you pick a book up like that up and you think that that's the most comprehensive history book and not knowing that a big chunk of the bi community is left out i mean you you don't know what you don't know right
2: yeah Exactly.
3: Um, and I think that a lot of that is happening and, and that continues to happen within our own community that that contributes to this disconnect and that it almost feels like we're not working together. Um, yes. But maybe I'm, I'm being cynical. What are your thoughts?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, as somebody who's been out since 1980, I, I get cynical, but I do remain <laughs> hopeful. I remain hopeful. And it's uh, we finally have the research basically for this is I think where the big shift is happening where it shows that there's actually more bisexuals than lesbian gay people put together mm-hmm. that um we face extreme like health disparities our high, our suicide rates are higher than lesbian and gay and heterosexual people our uh the poverty levels the uh, across the board the mental health issues. And as an elder, the isolation issues are really, really enormous and important to um, uh, to just keep pointing out and keep mm-hmm. educating. The educating. And I kind of forgot what you asked me. <laughs>
3: oh, we we're just talking about you know the the fact that the just that the, the gay, the lesbian community, um, excluding the bisexual community, oh, and
2: yeah. Yeah, I just thought of the, an important shift, I think, is during the same-sex marriage when it was gay and lesbian marriage this and gay and lesbian couple that, you know, back and forth, and bisexual couples, many same-sex bisexual couples were involved in that fight for the right to marry. And finally, you saw the language changed to same-sex marriage, same-sex couples even the president, and then I remember the president at the time of NAACP said um, same-sex marriage, and it was like, ooh, there's a cultural shift. That is a major cultural shift from, you know, being inclusive of bisexual people saying same-sex couples, same-sex marriage, same-sex, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I always get away from opposite because that just supports you know the either or piece, so a uh, different sex couple works for me much better, and it makes more sense to step outside that that either or place right so um the language shift just on that one thing, you know it's subtle but not so subtle, and it um it helps it helps that shift happen i mean it takes it's gonna take a long time to get beyond either or we're so programmed. We are, yes. Oh, I mean, my God, it, it, even, even, even me. <laughs> yeah, that you box. Know, I, you know, in my head, at least it doesn't blurt out my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah,
3: we do. We do like to be put into boxes, or you know. But I'm I'm very happy, especially like you had mentioned, the youths who are breaking through that box and really redefining the way that we even socialize, yeah. um, and how we identify. Uh, Lonnie, I'm going to take a quick break right here. But when sure. we come back, I want to touch on. Um, some of your work, and of course the memoir that you're talking about, and and really celebrate you and your life. So don't go away, okay? Okay. Don't go away. The Michelle Meow show continues, and we'll be right back with Lani Kaumanu. Listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com.
1: Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this.
2: Yeah, I'm ready for our family.
1: g-r-e-c-a-r-e.com allegra home care serving your
0: community and now back to the michelle meow show
3: Welcome back! Thanks so much for joining me and for celebrating Bye Week. Bye Week has been um, uh, September nineteenth through the twenty sixth, and so if you've got a bye friend, reach out to them, hug them, tell them you love them, tell them they're great and beautiful, and uh, recognize the issues that we all need to be educated on in order to support our bye friends. On the guest with me, and I'm so excited and so honored that she's joining me here, she's a big, huge voice for the bisexual community, is Lani Ka'aumanu. And uh, Lani, right before the break, I mentioned that we wanted to jump into some of your work. You're working on a memoir. Uh, so speaking of a memoir, I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot of memories out there. Um, a lot of I have a lot of questions about even just wanting to hear about your personal life and falling in love and, relationships with great, awesome people that you may remember or want to share with us that might be included in the memoir.
2: Holy Toledo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I get asked. It's so interesting because. I get asked these questions, and I think, God, I'm going to be 73 next week, and it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, how many decades ago? Um, <laughs> you sound 21. <laughs> I, I, well, I used to be a San Mateo housewife. There's a piece of information. <laughs> so when I'd answer the phone, they go, "Is your mom home?" <laughs> and I'd have to deep, make my voice really deep and say, "This is. I am the. I am. You know." Like. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so yeah, I know I have a. I actually never really quite listened to my voice that much, but I get told that, you know. Or nobody's asking for my mother anymore, though, when they call here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, the the short the short of it is is uh when you're my generation, uh, at least in my family, I was raised to be married and have kids, and so that's what I did. Captain of the football team, the whole the whole rah rah thing. And uh, Little League Mom, Ice Cream Lady on Fridays. I did it the whole thing, but I was crying all the time, didn't know what to do. And my ex-husband, who's really a great guy, really loved me. And he goes, I figured it out. You need to leave. He goes, you've never had a life of your own. And as soon as he said it, I knew he was right. And so I didn't leave because I fell in love with a woman or anything. I left because I was a kid having kids, and 11 years after... Being married 11 years, I I, I left the suburbs and uh, had been going to school. I was at San Francisco State, a hotbed of lesbianism. Okay, <laughs> in the 70s, with wow. uh, helped found the women's studies department and was around. People like Sally Gearhart and Judy Gron and maybe these people don't even wow. ring a bell. They do um, <laughs> just only
3: because of you know my history and research. And I mean, Sally Gearhart was just made a uh, life a lifetime celebrity yeah. Grand Marshal for Pride.
2: Yeah, I mean she's she's my mentor and good pal still. I go up and visit her in Walt Willits mm. as much as I can. She's eighty five. Mm. I know. Um, so. Just being around—it was the 70s, and it was the the music, women's culture, and music was rising up, and uh, it was an amazing time. You know, there was a cheering section for you if you came out. Seriously, it was <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so um, I came out. Wow. I, I've I've no I've known my whole life I've been attracted to women. Mm-hmm. You know, there was always something, and my best friend and I in high school would talk to each other about lesbians or homosexuals, because, you know, there was really no language. Yeah, but it was all very whispered. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I came out, and it was glorious and wonderful, but I had been in a really 15-year relationship. I didn't want to... I was having so much fun figuring out who I was that I didn't get... I had friendships and everybody quite frankly was sleeping with everybody (laughs) it was a pretty wild and fun time and then um and i graduated from women's studies and oh back then it's interesting i ended up sleeping with a man three times in four years Whoops. but back then what you'd say is that oh you're just figuring something out (laughs) and you'll you know you'll figure it out and then you won't that won't happen anymore. Um, and so I I thought, okay. That's, you know, there wasn't like making you bad or anything. It was just a confusing sort of thing happening when I was coming out. And then and then I uh, left the city when I graduated from women's studies and psychology and um, got this job up at a New Age resort in Mendocino. I was totally politically fried. I'm a, I've been a chef. So I was the kitchen manager chef. Blah, blah. I mm-hmm. went to the 79 March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights and then came back the second summer. And I fell in love with a man, mm-hmm. a bisexual man. And it was like, oh, no, I can't go back to this city saying I'm bisexual. There's no such thing. I mean, I told him that. And he goes, Lon, what are you doing with me? Then? What's going on here? You can't say you're a lesbian. And so, for a while, when I first came back to the city because of my own internalized biphobia and confusion, and what the hell what's going on' was a really good relationship really helped you know it was it was good and um so I identified basically as a lesbian identified bisexual, and i i didn't i was not they tried to kick me out really I was shunned and shamed and um a lot of really. Hard things happen. Uh, personally, people mm-hmm. getting up, Artemis Cafe, I sit down, a whole table gets up and moves across the room because they don't want to be near me. No. You know, kind of like, yeah. Oh, I could, the worst one. Okay, you want to hear the worst one? Yeah, I do. <laughs> right on.
3: <No>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is so important to talk about it and, and it, it because um, hopefully it doesn't get repeated in other, you know, social circles out yeah. there.
2: Well, this one would be, if it happened again, I'd fly to wherever the person was and hold them. Uh, it was right after a big now march for women's right to choose, and we ended up in Golden Gate Park. And I'm standing there with a bunch of women, most of them I sort of know or know. And um, there was an infamous crotch-sniffing dog in the community named Natalie, and uh, a lesbian dog owned by a lesbian. Mm-hmm. And I was standing kind of near the owner, who I will call... uh, I was just going to say Michelle. Sorry, Michelle. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. We'll call her Julie. Um, That sounds good. (laughs) God. Um, And so she turns to me, and in a really loud voice, she said... (laughs) Oh, God, it's even hard to say. She said... She just said I was tainted. I was a traitor, and I... I was a traitor. That was the first thing she said, which I was called a lot, but just publicly, this publicly shaming. I was a traitor, and her dog, Natalie, because I now had a tainted crotch, would never sniff my crotch again. That's
3: horrible. Isn't that
2: like, and I'm just standing there going, huh, <sighs> mm. <laughs> and her lover just said, Julie. And um, she kind of kept going, and then I just was stunned. I didn't even know what to say. But it was like that public, really, nastiness. I mean, some of our history is really nasty, and it's important, thank you, to uh, talk about it. And I thought I would I just wouldn't be kicked out. My heart was home. My politics didn't change. Nothing changed.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Nothing changed. And um, a lot of women, or most women, and some men, too, who fell in love with the wrong gender, uh, just left, you know, they just left the community because it was the, uh, it was just too hard, and they kind of like went off into what we would say back then, some people probably still say you know heterosexual privilege, etc and I just would refuse to be kicked out basically and,
3: well I'm so thankful that you refused to be kicked out and you've had the courage to just keep going I mean you know even for myself if i if I can share. Um, And and, and I'm 34 years old. It came out when I was 19. And I I have always loved bisexual women. I just didn't know how how to define it and say it because there was that invisibility within our own community. So I totally get what you're saying. You know, you're either a lesbian or you're straight, or that was kind of what people... um, in your social circles would try to force you to say. And so in my mind, I had dated all of these bisexual or curious women and, you know, we'd break up and they, they were dating uh, men or, you know, doing their own thing. And, and I had kind of lost the thought or didn't make the connection. And I, you know, made the identity for them. Um, I made a huge mistake and it cost me some relationships of my own because of the ignorance. And it wasn't until, you know, I was much older and understanding my own sexuality that I realized that I love bi curious women.
2: <laughs> and there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. You. No, there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> there, <laughs> there isn't. And I, uh, thank you for sharing that too. Um, the, um what I do want to make clear is I have had long-term relationships with women. I don't want to sound like, oh, I was <laughs> having my one-night stands in boogie bands, and, uh, which is what I used to say in the 70s, um, that I, I've had many serious relationships with women who I adore and we're all still friends, mm-hmm. which is wonderful, too. Um, but back when I first came out, I, I just had been married for a long time. I, you know, like, I met him when I was 16, and... Uh I was thirty two when I left, thirty one. I was like in high school many, you know, in some way. And just was my eyes were wide open and it was a very fun time, but um I did <laughs> I did settle down some <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good. I know. Yeah. No I,
3: I mean I and I'm, I'm so happy because of work that you know, you have um been so committed to now we're here in twenty sixteen where a lot of people can be open and uh, and and talk openly about sexuality and being bisexual cuz even as a as a as a lesbian or a self-identified lesbian it was like every time i had a girlfriend and we broke up and and then you know if they dated a guy after we broke up Many people oh, yeah. would call me like a converter or something like that, <laughs> and I'm like, I swear I don't have those types of magic powers. But now, you know, now we have the words to actually be respectful to one another in 2016, and so I really do credit activists like yourself and and kind of seeing that through that we're here today, that we can be more respectful and too, we can love each other regardless of you know our. Are the boxes that people make us check off and/or identity?
2: Yeah, we we have to watch each other's backs.
3: We yeah. sure do. <laughs> we sure do. Well,
2: that's the, That's <laughs> the, a key for sure. Yeah, and um, and the and the respect piece. I think the, the as transgender people. I mean, the one thing that I truly uh, am proud of is and what I the a big chunk of information that uh, will be in my memoir is how the bisexual and transgender community in the late eighties and throughout the nineties stood together and the trans community was much uh, less organized. You know, they were just, it was a brand new and it was mostly like the male to female community was getting organized and the F to M community was getting organized, but it wasn't like a transgender movement together at that point. But, the bisexual movement had been organizing for quite a while, and um, during the 90s, many leaders, including me, were approached by lesbian and gay leaders saying, well, if you drop the T, if you get rid of the T, we'll include you. And we stood strong and fierce throughout the whole that whole decade into the—and probably still that would happen, but I don't think anybody's asking that anymore because <laughs> we've been included— But when we were pushing, we were always pushing for bi and trans people Mm -hmm. uh, from the late 80s. And some of that was the campus, the youth on the campuses, the bi and trans youth were from, like in the 1987 March on Washington, a lot of the campus groups had included either bisexual or bisexual and transgender. So that youth movement then was already rising up Mm -hmm. and... um, some community centers, the veterans group was GLB. And so the, it was just starting to happen. And, um, some, yeah, some of the more interesting stories in the 90s are how bi and trans people worked together to uh, push the lesbian and gay community. The right wing recognized us before the gay and lesbian community recognized us. <laughs> I mean, the Amendment 2 in Colorado, the boilerplate for anti-gay initiatives, state initiatives, included bisexual, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I t- <laughs> my friend who was on the board of NDLTF with me made a documentary on, you know, the Fight the Right Amendment 2, and I said, I saw, that, I saw that documentary, and you didn't include bisexual. The, the Amendment 2 included bisexual, and she just turned white, It was, and we started laughing. She goes, oh, you mean I never read it? I did a whole documentary. <laughs> I said, Yes. <laughs> so but and then the other ones like in Oregon and Washington included transgender people too. But the right the but the fight the right folks in the lesbian and gay community that were strategizing would not include us.
3: Well, they are including you today. And yeah, I mean, I can't not. say that, you know, all across the entire world, but hopefully we're we're doing a much better job. Lonnie, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on the program and for celebrating Bi-Week with me. And thank you for being you. And thank you for, you know, being patient with the community as we all um, become more educated. So thank
2: well, you. I totally appreciate you, Michelle. I know we met a long time ago. Yeah, a long time. We did ago, so. It's a pleasure. Yeah, Be back here and call me anytime.
3: You got it. So you got good. it. Thank you, Lonnie.
2: You're welcome. Bye bye. To
3: hear more about Lonnie's work or to read her work, you can head to her website at lonnicaaumanu dot com. And I know you're going to have a tough time spelling Ka'aumanu, not because I think that you can't spell, but, but because I know uh, that uh, not everyone here totally can do the Hawaiian thing so I will post that information up on our website um, if you want to check out her work don't go away when we come back we'll end the show with another awesome uh, story and or interview celebrating Bi week <laughs> The Spotlight on Success and Achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's Spotlight on Success and Achievement is Rick Welts.
1: Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, Everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life. But it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, The decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion. Uh, and you know I welcome that and this is uh, you know for me a real honor to, to be participating in this way and I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time uh, not as far as our society has come so I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow I, I don't think I have any secrets I don't think I'm that mysterious you know I've got a, a pretty simple life I like pretty simple things uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them. We drove to Lake Tahoe and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement,
0: presented by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show.
3: Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Wednesday, this hump day, um, this last week of September. Seems like 2016 is in a rush to close itself off. (laughs) I mean... You know, this year has just been, it's gone by so fast, but it, at the same time, maybe it hasn't. We've we've gone through a lot as um, as humans, a lot of loss, a lot of things happening. And so, anyway, we are celebrating the end of bi-week. And I was very, I felt very lucky to speak with Lani Ka'aumanu, uh, a huge voice for the bisexual community. And so to end our last day of recognizing Bi Week today, we are going to play an interview that we did with Daisy Hernandez, who is an author. She wrote A Cup of Water Under My Bed, and we had a great discussion about identifying as bisexual, queer, as well as Latina. So let's listen to the interview. Welcome, 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 welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Wednesday, this hump day, this very last day of August. I apologize. I have, I've just been gone this, this year. I've not been consistently in the radio studio, and I have to apologize. I'm lucky that I'm able to even keep up with the television show, although the month of Pride in San Francisco did keep me away. Uh, 2016, it's not even over yet, and I have so much to say. It's just been the year of loss. Personally, for me, uh, I just got back from a funeral, so that would be the reason why I could not get it together <laughs> to produce a, uh, a couple of new shows for you yesterday and also Monday. And it's also been the year of challenges. And then on top of that, you add everything else that's happening, the world tragedies, the election here in the United States, Colin Kaepernick's right to sit down during the national anthem and all of these racist comments going back and forth. You just just start to feel so, so beaten down and, and so depressed. So I am so grateful that I have you that's tuning in and listening to good people who are doing good things because I think that the the positive of human interaction is what we need to lean on in order to move forward. That's the key thing. Let's just keep moving forward. Again, happy Hump Day Wednesday. Today, we've got a great show for you. We've got uh, an author with us who's our special guest, our main guest today. And then the second half of the show, we have someone who identifies as the National Anthem expert or the Star-Spangled Banner um, expert. And so we'll talk to him about his thoughts regarding Colin Kaepernick and, you know, All these comments going back and forth, I I just had this like theory that most Americans who have an opinion about it might not even know the history (laughs) of the national anthem and also uh, may not even know why we have it to begin with. So it'd be interesting to talk to him. But let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. My next guest is the author of her own memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed, and uh, the memoir has gained international notoriety, also uh, well-known in the LGBTQ community as it touches on personal experiences, not just of coming out or coming of age, but also uh, immigration, also being someone of color. And, you know, here in the program, that is what we're all about, learning from each other. So let's welcome Daisy Hernandez to the program. Daisy, thanks so much for being with us.
4: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited uh, so am I. I have to
3: you know, I'm, I'm sad that I did not get a chance to thoroughly read the book before we got a chance to speak. But I think, you know, uh, asking questions as if I <laughs> were the audience yeah. is a good thing. Let's start by getting to know you. Tell us where did you where were you born? Where where uh, where did you grow up?
4: Yeah. A lot of people, when they first meet me, are like, where are you from? And I tell them, <laughs> I'm from Jersey. And then they say, no, where are you really from? Still from Jersey. <laughs> and grew up in um, in a home where my dad is from Cuba, my mother's from Colombia, and we grew up in a small working class community just outside of New York City, so that little corner of northern New Jersey and um which has now you know when we arrived there we were we were the second latina family um on our block and now of course if you go there the town is 99% <laughs> latina it has really really changed since i was a child
3: Wow, you know that's uh, that's very interesting. Very similar to my childhood. I also did grow up in an immigrant mm-hmm. immigrant family, and that's that's what I mean. Is that when you're not white, <laughs> lots of people always ask you, "Where are you from?" And and that's mm-hmm. that's exactly what I meant. So let's talk about your childhood before we get to uh, you know, I guess adolescent teenage years, and and then you know, your adult life, and kind of why you thought it was important to write this memoir, what was it like to grow up in in a a small town in which you were the second Latino family family, uh, on your
4: block? Was it easy? It had a lot of challenges. I think that some of the challenges are challenges that a lot of people face in childhood where they know that Things that are happening are perhaps unjust, but you don't have the language yet because you're a child. So, um, you know, I remember, um, you know, people at um, on the bus and at the um, the fabric store because my mother's a, a um, the sewing and and these uh white folks you know saying in English to her, "Why don't you know English and why don't you speak English et cetera and of course, being the child who did who was learning English in school, I understood what they meant um so I knew what they were doing was wrong, but I couldn't quite you know i didn't I was too young to have the language to articulate institutional practices <laughs> and all those other things that we that I do now have the language for, and a lot of that <laughs> is what motivated me in terms of wanting to write the memoir is because, you know, that growing up process is one of developing that language, right, and beginning to make those connections between experiences that felt felt very private and felt very singular to my own family, and then, of course, coming into political consciousness, um during college years, realizing, oh, we're part of a much larger story. And having had some ideas that we were part of a larger story, because as I was growing up, especially in those early childhood years, you know my mother, of course, was connecting with other immigrant women in the community um, little by little, and so I knew we were all experiencing something somewhat together, um, but didn't have the language yet for it.
3: Mm. And what about, you know, just um, either... Acting Latina or acting white, I mean, was that uh, was that something that you experienced growing up, um, your parents going back and forth and wanting you to to be really good at who you know, where you came from or where your family came from, but also very good at all, uh, at uh, acclimating and assimilating to Western culture?
4: Yeah, there were a lot of mixed messages. Um, my parents themselves are not um flag waving Latinos. <laughs> Latinas. <laughs> so my, my my dad and my mom like really like you know, both of them have been in this country now over forty years. I think my dad has been here close to 50 years, um, and, and neither of them ever, they, they did not have pride of, of their, of their own countries and of their culture. They, they both grew up, um, in, in poverty. My dad in a more rural area, Cuba, my mother, both rural area and city, but pretty poor. And for them, you know, coming to the U S was, um, was absolutely, you know, about, um, you know, you know, having class mobility um, that they wouldn't have been able to have in their own countries. But I think in order to do that, for whatever reasons, like both of them really, um, to, you know, began to associate their country and their culture with just with poverty, with a lot of negativity. It was a very negative experience. Um, so, ironically, they did not assimilate, however, right? Like, mm-hmm. to this day, all of our conversations are all in Spanish. They now, I mean, they've lived in only Spanish-speaking neighborhoods. I mean, so so it's interesting because, um, it's, you know, one thing is what your parents say and another thing is what your parents do. Right. So, what they've actually done is basically, um, you know, taken the village from Latin America and, like transposed it over, you know, onto U.S. land, essentially, right? So they created this really, um, you know, great community for themselves. Um, And But their message for me was definitely that I would, you know, again, mixed messages that I would, you know, definitely go white, you know, like the Italians that I was growing up around, Um, but not too white, you know. And I remember (laughs) my dad when I was in, I was in, I might have been in college actually. And he said he said to me that his plan was basically to build an extension to the house that we were living in so that, like, when I married, I could live in that house with mm. my husband. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why aren't you talking about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think he had this idea that I would stay, you know, within this, like, you know, guy of. Village that he was now a part of. Um, I don't think either of them anticipated that I would um, ever leave New Jersey or ever leave the neighborhood mm-hmm. or have something to too different. But at the same time they wanted me to have the financial stability that they did not have. And on the yeah. flip side, I was also raised by a lot of aunties, my mother's sisters, three of them. Let's and all those three sisters yeah. came with a lot of pride. So they had some very fixed ideas about how I should be, especially a good girl, especially a good Colombian girl, you know, very gendered. Um, I, that gender was that was
3: like my next question, you know, in, in mm-hmm. terms of, of gender roles and uh, how focused they were on that. So what does it mean to be a good, you know, little Colombian girl? What were their standards?
4: Yeah, one of the chapters in the memoir, I focus on my relationship with one of my aunties who – You know, her way of controlling my behavior um, was by making references, derogatory references to indigenous women. So if I, you know, if I spoke back to her or if I was anything except quiet, like a little doll in the corner, (laughs) if I was anything except a little white doll in the corner, um, she would come out with, you know, I gained ya que you know, and, 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 you know put that into a derogatory um connotation, and I, you know of course, growing up you know there i can t- I could talk to you now about like you know indigenous uh, identification and the racism in Latin America and the hierarchy people well, when you're growing up, you're just like uh, what are you ta- why are you talking about Native Americans right now? <laughs> you know your reference points are so different from what the immigrant women in your family are bringing to you, right, yeah. So um, so for her, one of the one of the main ways to control it was actually like that linking up of like the race experience with gender. Um, and she saw, you know she very much wanted me to behave in the um, you know, what I didn't understand at the time, but was the ideal, Spaniard, you know, from Spain, um, tracing roots back there, that she wanted me to behave in that way. And so it meant being very polite. If anyone called you, si sí, señora, you know, a la orden, you know, it was, it was sort of all these um, more formal, you know, references in Spanish to, to authority and to the hierarchy within the family as well. Mm-hmm.
3: So, you know, and their ideas, and you mentioned it, it's so common with a lot of families in which the parents uh, already put in your mind, in your brain before you even uh, are, you know, considering your sexuality or experiencing, mm-hmm. right, that that part of you that they have this ideal partner or marriage or, you know, person mm-hmm. that you're going to marry. Did that come up at all for, you know, for you? Did you experience that? And And if so... What, who was that ideal husband that you would have?
4: Oh, yes. Uh, it, it was definitely communicated both through the way the women in my family talked about other women in the community, um, and also the telenovelas or the spanish language soap operas that we watched religiously every single night as a family <laughs> um it was always very clear that the ideal partner was definitely going to be male um uh cis male and was going to be very light skinned and um and wealthy and and my family was definitely you know i i don't know because i haven't what not have been in this position but Definitely was communicated that it would probably be would would be forgiven if they didn't speak Spanish if they had all those other <laughs> categories checked off um, <laughs> it would be acceptable to to them and um, you know but at the same time they were inadvertently perhaps like also raising me with these very romantic notions of love because I was watching these like Spanish language telenovelas, you know, where it's like, all that really matters is that you love each other yeah. and that transcends all boundaries of class and race. i mean, never transcended race, but like when you're young, you just kind of make the connections <laughs> like that. Right. So, um, right. I ended up, you know, I myself am very, you know, I, I did not have a lot of challenges that I think other queer folks have in the sense that, um, you know, present as, you know, I don't. Ident- I didn't. didn't identify as femme, but I identify. But I get classified that way, and so, so they didn't. So we didn't have challenges within my family about how I was presenting gender, um, and I didn't realize, you know, my own um, sexual orientation until I was in college, like an older teenager. So oh. by that time, I had some. I had some independence. I lived at home until I was. 27, mm-hmm. but I had a lot of freedom within my home. So so it was a little bit of a different experience, I think, because it was, um, I think because of the class issues and the immigration issues and then my particular family dynamic.
3: Well, I want to get into that. I want to get to the the coming out part. I'm sure our listeners want to as well in, in getting to know you <laughs> as, a, as a queer woman or an LGBTQ identified uh, woman. So we're going to take a quick break right here. When we come back, we'll continue with Daisy Hernandez. So don't go away. You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com.
4: Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk
3: 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy, ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.
1: Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah,
2: I'm ready for our family. And now,
0: back to the Michelle Meow Show.
3: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Wednesday. I'm Michelle Meow. your host. Our special guest on the phone is Daisy Hernandez, and we're talking about her memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed. Daisy, just uh, just very quickly, A Cup of Water Under My Bed. Tell us what the title means to you.
4: Yeah. It, it, it's actually the, literally the practice of putting a cup of water under your bed, um, uh, a practice that when you're having a hard time sleeping, the idea—there's sort of different reasons around it. but My mother and the women in my family did that to help us with our sleep, and it had been recommended to them by um, women who were curanderas or did healing work in the community. And the, the idea being that the, I've read different things about it over time, the idea being that the spirits that are coming to bother you at night would be satiated by the water uh, and not bother you anymore. When I was young, I thought that the spirits were actually drowning in the little cups of water. <laughs> um, so what's been fascinating about the title, is, and I chose the title because I felt like, you know, it signaled as well to, it's, it's signaled in a very practical way how the women, immigrant women in my family tried to take care of me and then metaphorically, right, signaled to sort of um, a very small gesture that encompasses so much. And what's been great is actually meeting uh, people from, whose families are from all over Latin America who have that practice as well and have some variations on it, like they put an egg in the water or they slice lemons and put them into the water. So they're sure like different variations on the same. Um, I am assuming probably a very indigenous or African in origin practice. Mm.
3: So let's, you know, take experiences like that and apply it to, you know, finally coming out and this coming of age and, and, and recognizing yourself. And, and uh, for a lot of us who grew up uh, in immigrant families, you you're so focused on what your parents have to say because you, you think that, you know, they, they've guided you here in this country to, uh, and they know everything, right? And then you, you go off to school, you go and experience um, different social settings, and then you realize that a lot of stuff that they said are either wrong or, <laughs> or-